Sure. Do I need to point it in a certain direction? Okay. Like, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. It's a special privilege to be here, to be able to speak to you in person. I love being able to do the live stream thing, but again, I think I've said this before, there's nothing like being in person. Actually, being in your presence and seeing your eyes and seeing your expressions as you react to what I'm saying, it's a lot more enjoyable for me. By the way, uh, I've been meaning to say this, but I've never been finding a good way to say this, but if you ever are watching me from the back room, uh, that's fine, but I prefer to be able to see you. Uh, it's more edifying for me. I'm more encouraged when I can actually see who's listening and I can, I can see them paying attention. I feel more of a connection with each one of you when I actually see you. So if you do sit in the back, if someone's listening to this now and is, is watching from not here, I'm, I'd rather you listen even if it's in the back or online, but I'd rather even more seeing you through the live stream. So if at all possible, please do, as many of you are doing right now, sit in the, the front. A uh, unique privilege to be here. Uh, I know it's because a pastor is away, so uh, there's an opportunity for me to come, and I'm really excited to be here. I'll be doing the Sunday school lesson as well as the sermon later. But let's remind ourselves where we are in our Sunday school curriculum. We are looking at the birth of the church. We've finished the Gospels, finished the life of Jesus, and we're in the book of Acts. We just saw the promised helper come last week. The Holy Spirit coming in a dramatic fashion on Pentecost. And we also talked about how the Holy Spirit is still working today. One of the things we mentioned last week is that much of what we saw at Pentecost was a preview of something that's going to be fulfilled in a greater way in the future. There was a first harvest, the first fruits of a harvest among the Jews, even that day of people who were saved and became filled with the Spirit. But that's going to be true in a, in a fuller way, in a complete way, one day in the future when all Israel is saved, when God's Spirit is poured out on his whole people. By the way, along those lines, if you don't know, the Master Seminary has been doing a series on premillennialism lately. Every spring, the faculty does a faculty lecture series, and they, they do a topic that's relevant to the church. And this year, they're doing premillennialism. So there have been a number of great lectures on the subject of premillennialism, biblical basis for it, and so forth. I think you'd be really edified if you got to listen to those. You can find them at the webpage for the seminary, tms.edu. If you go to tms.edu and you go to resources and then hit chapel archive, you can find those messages. I think they'll be a great benefit to you. You can also find it on the TMS Facebook page. By the way, the Master Seminary website was recently redone with all new pictures of the students. And I'm just saying, if you look around, you might find someone's face that you know, or at least half his face. So, but back to our lesson. God provided amazing growth to the church, even in one day, on the day of Pentecost. 120 disciples grew by 3,000, 3,000 souls of men and women. And these new converts were brought immediately into a new church life. Actually, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we see what this looks like. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, let's see what the church began to do, what the people of God began to do. So this is right after the sermon that Peter spoke on Pentecost, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with them all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's wonderful, right? Many of those things that are mentioned there are the exact same things that we're doing today, that God has called us to do today as the people of God, as the church. This is a wonderful start to the church. But surprise, surprise, what appears soon after the beginning of the church, but the beginning of the persecution of the church. And that's what we're talking about today. Persecution starts with the leaders. The title of today's lesson is The Apostles Are Persecuted. What we want to know as we examine the scriptures today is how were Jesus' disciples persecuted? How did it begin? How did they respond to the persecution? That's the most important part. And then how should we respond to persecution? How should we view it? How should we respond when it happens to us? Let's pray before we go on. Lord God, it's so good to be with, the, uh, with your people today. Thank you, Lord, that you provided this opportunity. Lord, I pray that you give me the, uh, the ability to explain this word well. Lord, that your spirit would indeed work because if the spirit is not in it, God, it is worthless. Oh, God, I pray that you would work among your people. I pray that you would work in me to be able to teach this as I ought. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, move over to Acts chapter 4, and that's where we're going to start investigating today's topic. This is where we see persecution begin. Context here, between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, Peter and John visit the temple again. They're in the temple grounds, and they happen to see a man who is lame for a long time. The man is not able to walk. He's looking for alms, but they instead heal the man miraculously in the name of Christ. The man jumps up, starts walking around and praising God. And the people who are in the temple, the other Jews, they're amazed. and They they run to Peter and John. But Peter says, why are you guys so excited about us? It wasn't our power. It was Jesus Christ who did this. And Peter takes the opportunity to tell them the message about Jesus. And a very similar message to Acts 2 Peter tells the people that Jesus is God's Messiah. He tells them that they killed him, though they did it in ignorance. But God raised Jesus from the dead. But this was all in fulfillment of scriptures. Peter even points out certain prophecies, and he exhorts the people to repent. So this is another amazing gospel opportunity, right on the heels of what happened on the day of Pentecost. But lo and behold, an interruption. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. Let's see what happens. Longer section here, so follow along. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, that's Jesus Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place to them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purposes predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's make some basic observations of this text. Notice the timing. Back in verse 3, it says it was already evening. When does evening begin? Around what time? To the Jews? Yeah, sunset, which would be around 6 p.m., depending on the time of year. So it's already evening. How long have the apostles been preaching? Or at least, how long have they been in the temple? If we go back to chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1, notice it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Okay, so the ninth hour would be the ninth hour after 6 a.m., the beginning of the day, approximately 6 a.m. So when's the ninth hour? About 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So how long have they been in the temple? About three hours, from 3 p.m. to about 6 p.m. 
so they've been there for some time. Notice who approaches and interrupts the preaching. The priests, the temple guard, or the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. These are the ones who have jurisdiction over the temple. They are disturbed, and they come marching. It says they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and because they were proclaiming in Jesus, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And notice what they do with them. They laid hands on Peter and John, physically seized them, and they put them in jail, put them in jail for the night. So this is the first time in history that followers of Christ were imprisoned, even if it was for a short time. And who did it? The Jewish leaders. Notice how, though, the listeners responded to the preaching of Peter. It says many of them believed. How many? Not entirely clear. We know, from what we read earlier, people being added to the number of those initial converts daily. And that was 3,000 souls saved at Pentecost. By the end of this talk, it says there was a total of about 5,000 men. It doesn't mention the women. So some thousands have been added since the initial preaching at Pentecost. And many of them even at this, this one instance. We don't know exactly how many. Notice who gathers to judge Peter and John the next day. It says, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, and it mentions a number of the bigwig priests. What's another name for this gathering of people? Sanhedrin. It's also called the council later on. This is the ruling body of Israel. Roman governors on top of them, but a lot of autonomy has been given to the Sanhedrin to administer Judea. And what did the Sanhedrin do so recently? They put Jesus to death. It was this group. It was this group who decided he had to die. So they're probably not afraid to kill his followers. Peter and John probably know that. Notice the question they ask Peter and John. Not why are you preaching the resurrection of Jesus, but how did you heal this man, essentially? By what power or what name did you do what you did? Notice it's Peter who speaks. Keep seeing Peter responding. And notice again it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, right in verse, um, yeah, right in verse 8. This is just like what Luke told us about Pentecost when Peter spoke. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice Peter's reply. He tells them plainly, it was all done in the name of Jesus. No hemming or hawing here. But that's not all. He again takes the opportunity to remind them who Jesus is. He's God's Messiah. You killed him. God raised him from the dead, which, remember, the Sanhedrin knew about because they had posted the temple guard or posted the Roman guards at the tomb. They know what happened. They had the testimony. And Peter again points out that this was a fulfillment of the scriptures, what they did. He alludes to Psalm 118 when he refers to the stone which was rejected by you. Uh, Where is that? I wanted to find the specific verse. Oh, right, yes, verse 11. The stone which was rejected by you, the builders, this came to be the chief cornerstone. And Peter asserts there's salvation in no one else and in no other name but Jesus. Now notice the Sanhedrin's response. They're amazed. Why are they amazed? Well, the disciples are clearly confident. These men truly believe what they're saying, but they're obviously uneducated and untrained. How are they able to present themselves in this strong way? 
and they recognize them as having been with Jesus. The members of the Sanhedrin can't think of anything to say. They say it's obvious a miraculous healing took place, and the man is standing right there. So they confer, and notice, they decide to try to prevent the spread of the teaching about Jesus. How are they going to do this? What's their plan? Pretty simple. Command them not to do it. After all, we're the rulers of Israel. They better listen to us. We're going to command them not to speak anymore in this name, and there's an implication of punishment if they disobey. But Peter and John, it says both together, they flatly reject this order from their governing body. And notice their reasoning. They come right out and say, in verse 19, Shouldn't we obey God rather than mere men? Even you? Now, did God command them to teach about Jesus? Of course he did. When? The Great Commission. They were told specifically, go into all the world, be going into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I commanded you. If they disobey that commission, they disobey God. And they say, we'd rather disobey you than disobey God. We're going to choose God here. And they confessed they could not stop talking about what they had seen or heard. Oh, I should put my little uh, things up there. There we go. Sanhedrin's reaction to this, they further threaten them, but they don't punish them. Why don't they punish them? Because of the people. Everybody's glorifying God for what happened. If you punish the people who do this, people will be outraged. And that would threaten the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin, this is one thing we see about them. They're always sensitive to the people. And they don't act if they think the people are going to uh, react in a bad way. Now, what do the believers do? The disciples come back. They tell their fellow disciples what the Sanhedrin said to them. How do the believers respond? Now, there are a number of things that they do. What are some of the things that they do in response? There could be some praise here. It says they lifted up their voices. Specifically, we don't hear words, um, I would say that we don't hear words of praise. Maybe things are tending towards that line, but they are speaking to God. What's another word for that? prayer. They pray. And as they pray, notice the things that they say. What are some of those things? We can summarize some of those things. They meditate on his sovereignty, and they even bring back some scriptures. They say, Lord, you created heaven and earth. And they talk about what happened with uh, Jesus, and they said, they did what you predetermined them to do. So they meditate on God's sovereignty. They tell God about his own sovereignty. What else? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, so they... They not only meditate on God's sovereignty, but along with that, they meditate on Psalm 2. 
which you guys might remember we did a sermon on not too long ago, and that is a messianic song. And they point out how it's been fulfilled. It's actually kind of timeless in the, what it expresses in that man is always opposed to God and his Messiah. And they were opposed in a very obvious way when they killed him. The Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, they were fulfilling exactly what that psalm says. But it wasn't just then. Even now, with the threats of the Sanhedrin, they were fulfilling it again. And of course, it's going to have even more fulfillment in the future. Perhaps fulfillment is not the best word to describe all of this, but it keeps on having application. And one day it will have an even greater application at Armageddon, where the world literally, with arms, opposes Christ. And they say it's happening again now. And along with this, they make some petitions to God. So they're meditating on his sovereignty. They're praying to him. They're meditating on Psalm 2 and pointing out how it's so true. It's being even evidenced in their own time. But what do they ask God for? A couple things. They ask for confidence, yeah, or other translations say boldness. Give us boldness, God. Give us confidence. They ask God to notice the threats of the Sanhedrin. Pay attention to this, God. Don't forget this. And they ask for God to confirm their word with healings, signs, and wonders in Jesus' name. And notice, God immediately answers their prayer at least in part, with a very tangible response. The place that they were in, it says, was shaken. And this reminds me of Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah's vision of glory? He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and it says the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of God. There's often a connection with shaking and trembling of a, of a location in God's presence, God's power. The place they were in was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. It's safe to say that God was pleased with what they asked. Having made these observations, let's consider a number of interpretation questions now. First, think back to some of the things that Jesus said in the Gospels. How were his words about what the disciples would experience in the future fulfilled even in this account? Yes, Danny. Yeah, in a fundamental way, he promised them persecution because they hate people, hate Christ, and they're going to hate his disciples. And that's what we see here. Uh, a form of hatred manifest via the persecution of the Sanhedrin. What else that Jesus promised is fulfilled here? He told them that they would do something, even in the midst of persecution. They would be witnesses. To whom? Specifically said, you will be witnesses before rulers. You'll be witnesses before rulers, and you will speak to them for my sake. And remember what Jesus said? He said, when they do that, don't worry. Why? Yeah, Dwayne. Exactly. Don't worry about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that hour. Is that what we see here? 
Exactly. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks out a message of boldness and accuracy. Indeed, exactly what Jesus said was coming is what we see in this passage. Persecution, because of their obedience and belief in Christ. They would be witnesses to rulers. Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. All those things. Another question. What principle can we draw from this account when it comes to obeying the government? Should you obey the government? Yes, except when they tell you to go against what God commanded you to do. This is a principle we're familiar with, and we see it expressed very clearly here. One ought to obey the government. They are ordained by God. They have their authority from God. Governments are imperfect, but you honor them in order to honor God, same way that children honor their parents, not because the parents are perfect, but because they, this is about honoring the authorities that God has put in, put in place. So they do honor the authorities, but if the government says you can't preach, you can't tell people about Christ, you've got to disobey that because Jesus commanded you specifically to do that as he did all his disciples. What should have been the Sanhedrin's conclusion to examining Peter, John, and the healed man? Jesus is obviously Messiah and God, and we need to repent. If you think about it, the Sanhedrin was given such a privilege of testimony about Jesus. Again and again, they are given clear evidence, Jesus is the Son of God, you need to repent. And they're not even done yet, we're going to see more later. But they don't repent. And what does this show us about the Sanhedrin? They are so hard-hearted. This is the evilness of man, even in such a clear witness. And these are the leaders of Israel? Of course, they put to death the Messiah, so we've already seen their hard heart. But again, just more manifestation. Yeah, Roy. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to restate what you're saying in brief, yeah, you have the people who should be the teachers, the one who are most familiar with the scriptures, ought to be most familiar with the scriptures, totally blind to the truth, and these supposedly uneducated, untrained, uninformed Galileans doing the teaching. It does remind me of what Paul says to Corinthians, right? This is actually the glory of the gospel. God takes the weak to shame the strong, and the things that are not to shame the, or to overturn the things that are. That's what God loves to do in the gospel. This is not to say that nobody in the Sanhedrin was saved, or nobody was listening, because as we'll see later on, a great number of the priests become obedient to the faith. So God did even have a saving purpose in this kind of witnessing, not just, a, um, not just to make them accountable and to give them no excuse. 
Now, how would you characterize Peter's words in this account? He's speaking with boldness. He's filled with power. But these things came from the Holy Spirit, not Peter. So then why do the disciples pray for boldness when the disciples come back? Didn't he already speak with boldness? Why do they ask for boldness? Confidence. Yes, Danny. Mm. That's a good point. They didn't expect that this would be the end of persecution, and they realized we're going to need boldness. It doesn't matter that we had boldness in the past. Lord, we're going to need your continued help. There's an expression of dependence on God and not confidence in themselves. This is important. This is very instructive. They recognized that they needed the Lord's strength, the strength of his spirit. They recognized that God had strength and that he was willing to provide it, boldness to them. And so they ask. And God is very pleased with their prayer. and He grants their request. Now, one more question that's kind of a little off the path here. Will Christians today see similar church growth if they imitate the boldness and faithfulness of the early disciples? Maybe. Why do I say that? Yeah, Roy. Okay, um, I'm going to say a few things about that in just a second. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a second. That's a great point. Certainly, God uses, it is his pattern to use, bold, faithful preaching to bring about the repentance of people and the saving of souls. But ultimately, he is Lord of the harvest. He's the one who gives growth. You can do everything right and not get a very good result. And you can do a somewhat uh, poor job, like Jonah, and get a great result. Ultimately, it's up to God. God chose at this time to give a great harvest. And he has chosen at other times in history to give a stunning result of conversion and and new life in Jesus. But other times, that's not the case. Ultimately, as Steve was saying, it's what we want to concern ourselves with is faithfulness. We do expect, we do hope, we do expect that people will get saved. We don't know how many. The Lord didn't leave us here for no reason. We are to be the witness to the world, but we don't know the amount. We don't know the timing. 
For us, it is about faithfully going out into the field and then leaving the result to God, the Lord of the harvest. So God could do the same thing today. We are to go out in faithfulness, hoping that he will. But he may choose to do something different. Or he may choose to, as Roy was saying, to only put the seeds in for a later growth. But we will be rewarded not based on the number of conversions, but our faithfulness to go out into the harvest field. Now, coming to uh, the end of this passage, our talk of this passage, we see the apostles have experienced persecution, opposition, in a greater way than most of us have. I mean, compared to what we're going to see, this is kind of light, but compared to what we experience even today, this is a lot heavier. None of us have been hauled before some government body to explain what we're doing when it comes to preaching. Yet their response was not fear. It was dependence, it was prayer, and it was boldness for the Lord's sake. They were committed to keep on doing what God called them to do. Now, is this the end of persecution? As we've already said, no, it's just the beginning. Persecution would get more intense, even in the next chapter. Look at Acts chapter 5. I'm just going to summarize some of the things that we see in this next chapter, and then we'll look at a couple of verses. The apostles continue preaching. They continue healing. They continue casting out demons as the Holy Spirit gave them power to do. And many more people believed in Jesus. They were saved. And these people were coming from all over Jerusalem and in the surrounding vicinity. They were regularly gathering in a certain part of the temple complex called Solomon's Portico. They would gather to hear the teaching there. And seeing this, the high priest determined to act again. They seized all the apostles, verses 17 to 18 says in chapter 5. They seized all the apostles and they put them in prison. But then, an angel comes and miraculously sets the apostles free. He leads, the angel leads them out and commands them to go into the temple and teach again about Christ. Which is what they do. And when the guards come in the morning to find the apostles, they can't find them and they can't figure out what happened because everything's still locked. The guards are still there. They, they didn't see the apostles leave. But then they hear that, oh, those people you see, they're there in the temple preaching. And so the temple guard goes to get them and bring them to the Sanhedrin, but this time they do it without any violence because they fear the people. All the apostles are brought back before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin confronts them, verses 27 to 32, and they say, why did you disobey what we told you to do? Why are you still preaching in this name? And they basically give the same answer. Didn't we tell you we had to serve God rather than you? And once again, they give a gospel proclamation to these leaders. They rebuke them for being disobedient to God and says the leaders were convicted. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. It's a little different from the first time. And they were going to kill them, but God provided that they wouldn't. Wouldn't it have been a very difficult thing for the church to have all the apostles killed right now? But God arranged for one of their number, Gamaliel, a very respected rabbi, one of the number of the Sanhedrin, to give some advice. He says, look, if this movement is not from God, it's going to fizzle out on its own. That's what we've seen happen in the past. But if it is from God, we dare not oppose it, because we might even be finding ourselves fighting against God. Now look what verses 40 to 42 say. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. 
they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. All right, notice a few things from these couple verses. Notice it says that they were flogged. What's flogging? It's just another little word for whipping or beating. Originally, it meant to flay the skin, but it just came to have the idea of hurting somebody physically. Same word is used for when Jesus is struck on the mouth when he's in the high priest's presence. He was beaten. It's the, it's the same idea here. So these men are beaten. The apostles are beaten. And they're ordered again not to speak in Jesus, or not to speak about Jesus. But notice how they react. This time we see that they rejoiced. They, they went away rejoicing. And why? Well, they rejoiced over that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now meditate on that for a little bit. The apostles saw persecution for Christ as a blessing and privilege. It doesn't mean they didn't find pain and difficulty in it, but they saw it as a blessing, a privilege, an honor. And they knew that they weren't suffering for nothing. They were suffering for Jesus' name. And then what they do? They kept right on teaching and preaching. In the temple, house to house, public, private. They kept on talking about Jesus. So just in these two chapters, we've seen the apostles seized, imprisoned, Warned, threatened, beaten, and almost killed. But their reaction has been prayer, meditation on scripture, continued gathering with the brethren. They didn't just disperse and say, oh, better scatter. Nope, they continue to gather with God's people. They are joyful, and they are obedient to continue to preach in Christ's name. And what does God do? Keeps drawing more and more people to himself. Chapter 6 says, and I alluded to this earlier, even a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, will all Christian persecution stop short of death? You probably know enough of the Bible to say no. We're going to see a lot of martyrdoms. In fact, we're going to see the first martyrdom in chapter 7. Enter Stephen. Chapter 6 introduces us to this wonderful man. Chapter 6, verse 3 says that he was a man full of the spirit and of wisdom because he was with a group of servants who helped fulfill a practical need for the widows of certain Hellenized Jews who had become Christians. Now, the Spirit of God wants us to know what happened to Stephen. Two chapters are devoted to it. Look at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. This is the first little bit about Stephen. I have listed on the slide there, 16, but it should be 15. Look at verses 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Chironians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. For they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Fixing their gaze on him, 
all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. All right, observe some things about what we just read. Stephen, or yeah, Danny, you're quick. Good question. What is the timing of this in relation to the ascension? It seems like it's pretty close. It doesn't sound like it's uh, some years later. I'd have to see, go back and look at what chrono- chronological details we can pick out. Um, but I don't get the, the sense that this is that long from Jesus' ascension. A lot of amazing things are happening quickly. But that would have to be something i look into more. But again, notice, Stephen is a man full of grace and power. He's able to perform miraculous signs. He speaks with great wisdom. He's confounding his Jewish opponents. He particularly is disputing with some certain Hellenized Jews. The places that are mentioned are essentially Libya, Egypt, and Turkey. These would all be very Greek places. Um, When we think of Turkey, we think of the the Turks who live there now, and even Libya we might think of as a, a place for North Africans. But these places were settled, colonized, and Hellenized so that they were actually very Greek. And so these Hellenized Jews, these very Greek-influenced Jews, are arguing with Stephen, and they cannot overcome his arguments. And so they resort to false charges, and they bring Stephen before the council, the Sanhedrin once again. That is, if you can't beat him, get him killed. What are the charges? He speaks against this holy place, that's the temple, and he speaks against the law. Now, They say, Jesus said, Jesus claimed, the guy he's preaching about, said he'll destroy this place, the temple, and he'll alter the customs handed down from Moses. I don't know if you've heard John MacArthur's recent sermons. He's been preaching through Galatians in Grace Community Church. But he made a statement the other day that I thought was very insightful, and that, strange as it may sound, the Jews were not as offended by the idea of a crucified Messiah as they were about the idea that the customs of Moses might be altered. Because what are the Judaizers doing in Galatians and other letters of the New Testament? They're saying, you better be circumcised or you're not going to be saved. You better keep the law of Moses. They didn't object to believing in Jesus, but they objected to altering the law. The Jews had such a, uh, such a devotion to their interpretation of the law and of Moses that if you wanted to get somebody in trouble, you just say that they spoke against Moses or said something about the law being annulled or fulfilled. But this actually makes sense because what had happened to Judaism, it became more and more external. And so people became zealous for what was external, which would be the law. And so you dare not speak against the law. Don't speak against the external things. By the way, does this remind you of anything that still happens today? What group is very devoted to external things? Catholic Church, right? A Roman Catholic Church. You can believe a bunch of weird things, but as long as you obtain the sacraments and you do what your priests tell you to do, that's fine. See, there are so many parallels between what Judaism had become and what Roman Catholicism has become. So they're zealous for this, and Stephen is facing death for what reportedly he said about the law. But notice his demeanor. It says in verse 15, his face appeared like the face of an angel. What does that mean? What's the sense you get of how he looked? 
Yeah, yeah, all those things, radiant. His face was attractive, and he was confident and calm. This is a theme we're seeing between these passages, even though he's being put on trial for his life. Pretty amazing when you consider the stakes. Stephen makes a defense before the council. We can't read it. We don't have time. But in Acts 7, verses 1 to 53, is a speech that Stephen gives. And in this speech, he basically responds to the charges, but also presents something very striking to the Sanhedrin. He proves in this speech that he understands and actually reveres Moses, the law given through Moses, and even the temple. But he also highlights three truths to those who are listening. First, that Israel rejected Moses several times, and they therefore rejected God. Israel had this penchant to reject Moses. Also, Israel never kept God's law. Oops, get through those. Israel never kept God's law, and God is way greater than external things like the temple. Now, these are not random truths to say that Israel constantly rejected Moses, they never kept the law, and God's greater than external things like the temple. Notice the way that Stephen applies these truths at the end of his sermon. Look at verses 51 to 53 in chapter 7, at the end of his defense. Right after he says, look, God's greater than the temple, verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. All right, so how does Stephen apply the truths at the end of his sermon? Someone summarize for me. Right, so Israel never kept the law, and neither do you. I mean, after all, he's on false charges brought by the Sanhedrin and those who are associated with them. And the other things are true, too. Israel rejected Moses again and again. You're doing the same. You're rejecting God's deliverer. They always rejected the prophets. You've rejected the one they talked about. You betrayed him and killed him. And moreover, you are committed to external things like the temple, but God is way greater than that. You are actually uncircumcised. You have uncircumcision of the flesh, but you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Everything that was wrong with Israel in the past, you are again embracing. You don't have what really counts before God. Now, this is bold, spirit-filled preaching. Yes. Good question. How would they have understood his reference to the Holy Spirit? The Old Testament does talk about God's Spirit. It doesn't always use, I'm not sure if it uses the phrase Holy Spirit, but God's Spirit is hovering over the waters, and even in Genesis chapter 1, 
and uh, various times the Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. So it wasn't a totally new concept for the Pharisees. But by even mentioning that, he was essentially saying, you're resisting God. You, um, when God speaks through people or where God acts, you, like your fathers, are resistant to it. Yeah. So this is very bold, spirit-filled preaching. This is true obedience on behalf of Christ. And it's a cutting rebuke of the supposedly religious body of Jewish leaders. But as Steve mentioned earlier, we get a kind of different result from what we saw, what we've seen in the last couple chapters. Look at verses 54 and 60. <clears throat> 54 to 60. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Let's observe a few things. What does cut to the quick mean? They were deeply convicted. They were cut to the very core of themselves. They knew. They recognized their sin, and they recognized the truth of Stephen's words. But it did not lead them to repentance. It led them to murder. Notice, though. Sorry, I'm going to get a little emotional here. Notice what God granted Stephen, though. A vision of the glory of Jesus in heaven. Why is this significant? As we read that text, what does that tell us? Or what did that show the people who were there? It first of all affirms Jesus is Messiah. He's testifying of that. Look, I see him right there. He's exalted just as I've been telling you, just as the apostles have been telling you. But what else does it affirm? Yeah, so confirmation for believers of what Jesus, of what the other scriptures declare. He is exalted. He is sitting, sitting, I think it says standing here, but he's at the right hand of the Father. He is making intercession. But what does it mean about Stephen if he's granted this vision? What, say that again? Yeah, it shows that he's a true follower. God's affirming him as my messenger. He grants him a vision. And this may even be because He's about to die. God gave him that grace. But shows Stephen is a faithful messenger. We shouldn't say, oh, well, actually, I'll come back to that point. We, we shouldn't deride him for his sermon, his speech. We'll come back to that point a little bit later. Now notice, oops, I may skip the point. Notice what Stephen is doing even while being stoned. Well, actually, let me ask you, what is Stephen doing? Yes. Yeah, he is praying. 
And it's two things, or maybe three things. It says he kept calling on the Lord Jesus. Or we could translate it that way. It says, as they were stoning him, he was calling. This is something he kept doing. He keeps crying out to the Lord. And he asks two things. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit to heaven. He knew what was going to happen. But then he also asked, Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. It says that he said that in a loud voice. Why is that significant? We'll say that. We should note that too. This is just like Jesus. Jesus, while on the cross, Luke 23, 34 says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. But the fact that he said it in a loud voice. Yeah, Danny. They heard it. They heard it. He asked them, or he asked God to forgive them, and he wanted them to know. And that is just like Jesus. The fact that we have it recorded about Jesus is that Jesus wanted people to know. It was the same heart. He asked the Lord not to hold this sin against them. And then it says he fell asleep. What does that mean? He died. It's a common New Testament euphemism. Just like we say he passed away. No, it's not teaching anything about soul sleep. There are plenty of New Testament passages that report things going on in heaven or hell that are going on before the resurrection. So no, soul sleep's not a biblical concept. But he died. Notice who's watching all of this? A young man named Saul. He's watching the clothes of those who are stoning Stephen. And the beginning of chapter 8 says that he was in agreement with those putting him to death. Saul will soon be moved to bring persecution to the entire church, to multiply this instance and things like it to God's people. Things are about to get pretty difficult for the early Christians. Now I mentioned, this is the first martyrdom, first Christian martyrdom in the Bible. What is a martyr? The Greek term actually means witness. It's come to have the connotation of one who witnesses a cause, or a person in death. For a Christian, to be a martyr means to give witness for Christ by dying for him. And it is a powerful witness, especially the way that Stephen died. He's the first martyr, but he's not the last. We'll see many more in the book of Acts, or we'll see a number more, but of course this is still happening today. Now, this is what I wanted to get to earlier. Was Stephen's speech a failure? Because it sure looks like it. No one got saved. Stephen was killed. And he managed to greatly inflame hostility to the Christian church. Couldn't have gone worse. But it's not a failure. And why isn't it? It's because of what we said earlier. It's not about the results. It's about faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And God affirmed Stephen and his words. He was granted a vision of Jesus in in heaven. He was said to be filled with the Spirit. This was approved by God, despite its painful results. And actually, God would use this for good. 
Yes, it resulted in a wave of persecution. And I somehow lost my tissue already. Oh, wait, I put it in my other pocket. There we go. <laughs> this would have resulted in good. And though there's a wave of persecution, that wave produced a, a wave of gospel preaching that expanded beyond Jerusalem, expanded beyond Jerusalem. And later, the very man that Stephen's death inspired to persecute the church, that man would be converted to Christ. And he would become the church's greatest apostle. So no, this was not a failure at all. It was approved by God, and God would even show how it would be used for good. Along these lines, we might ask, why did God give Peter and John such a good result of their preaching and persecution, but Stephen such a bad result? Well, we've got to redefine what bad and good are. Suffering and death are not necessarily bad. The apostles were joyful to be beaten for the Lord because it brought glory to God, and they were glad to do that. They were glad to give witness of him. God knows exactly what is good in each situation and for each person, and sometimes it's not the same. He'll give one person one thing and another person another thing, but it's good for each one what he decides. You remember what Jesus said to Peter in the end of the book of John. He essentially told Peter, you're going to die for me one day, and Peter says, Lord, what about this man? Speaking about John. Jesus says, it doesn't matter. What if I let him live until I come? You follow me. I know what is good for you. I know what is good for him. Don't worry about the others. You just follow me. So let's bring together what we've seen in these different passages today. We've seen bold preaching. We've seen resulting salvation and persecution as a result of that preaching. We've seen various kinds of persecution, beatings, imprisonment. One was killed. There were threats. And we see, though, how the apostles and the other believers responded to this persecution. There were prayers for boldness, prayers for the forgiveness of those persecuting. There was joy. There was meditation on Scripture. There was continued preaching, and there was continued gathering with the brethren. So now let's bring this and apply this to us with a number of questions. I'll go through these quickly since we're short on time. How should we prepare for persecution? We've spoken about this already when we examine Jesus' teaching about that. We know it is part of being a disciple. So how should we prepare or recognize that it is part of being a disciple and get dependent on the Lord now? Don't say, okay, I will stand when it comes. Are you are you standing for the Lord before persecution? Are you praying? Are you gathering with others? Are you asking others to pray for you? Are you meditating on the word? Are you jettisoning various sins and idols? Because if you're not faithful to the Lord now in the little things, what makes you think you're going to be faithful when the stakes are higher? Also, another way for us to prepare is to think through the blessing of persecution. This is very foreign to our flesh. Why is persecution a blessing? Among other things, it is the fulfillment of our life purpose. We can witness Christ. That's what our lives are all about. It's the only reason why we're still on the earth. We get to enjoy Christ. We get to be refined. We get to see our faith affirmed by God. So we know we have an inheritance with him. And though we should prepare for persecution in one sense, we'd also want to heed the word from Jesus to trust God to give us the grace and words for that time. 
We don't have that grace yet, and he'll give us the words by his Holy Spirit in that hour. Along the same lines, how should we respond to persecution when it happens? Don't think it's strange, as Peter says in his letter. Make sure you're being persecuted for the right reason, not for an obnoxious attitude, but because of the truth. Rejoice in the Lord, trust in God, and forgive and pray for your persecutors. We see that example, both from Christ and Stephen. How should we respond to others who fail to stand in persecution? Our own brethren. Recognize, or how should we respond if we failed in the past? Recognize the Lord fully forgives. He fully forgives the repentant. Peter, he denied Jesus three times. And yet, then he later stood and he's preaching boldly and suffering beatings for Jesus' sake. The Lord is able to forgive and restore. We should do that for others too. Yes, Sometimes our brethren won't stand when they should. But forgive them. Pray for them. Be understanding. They might even abandon you. Happened to Paul. But the Lord still stands with you. Encourage your brethren. Do what Paul did to Timothy. Encourage, yes, even admonish at times, but say, no, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Stand with me for the Lord. But forgive them. Forgive them if they they waver. Should we pray for persecution? Should we pray for trials in our lives? Well, let's be careful here. The Lord's Prayer does say, lead us not into temptation. It can also be translated trial. So there is precedent for us not to pray for that. God has more than one means of witness. Persecution is one. That isn't the only way. You don't necessarily have to pray for it. But what you should pray for is that you might be faithful that you might be bold, and that you might glorify God, whether through persecution or through acceptance. Pray for boldness and strength. Do we remember the persecuted? Do we pray for them? Do we even know about them? Especially the ones that are close to us, even part of our church. Do we remember them? Do we encourage them? Do we join with them? We'll see something, in a concept in the book of Acts, is that the church extends beyond the local vicinity. The believers in Judea were conscious of what was happening with the Gentile believers and vice versa. And they remembered, they thanked the Lord for them, they supported each other, they prayed for each other. And one final question. Do you want to glorify Christ no matter the cost? What is the point of your life? Would you rather a long, comfortable life that did little for Christ and his church Or a short, difficult life that glorified God and built up the church in a great way? Which would you rather? If you want a life that matters, you must, by faith, live for a life beyond this world. Is that what you do? This is fundamental of what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple. So the church is born, but also persecution of the church is born. But can persecution ever thwart God's, God's gospel? No. Can the gospel ever be chained? No. It may be diminished in certain areas, but it will never be stopped. Next time, we'll see how the gospel spread in spite, and maybe even because of, increased persecution.
Let's pray. Lord, we see our calling. We see these wonderful examples of the, those who went before us by your Spirit. But God, we cannot do this unless we rely on you. Oh God, Holy Spirit, please give us boldness. Give us love for you and for other people. Help us not to live for this world. That will destroy our witness. That will, not cause, that will cause us not to stand. But Lord, let us look forward to the kingdom that is coming. Let us look forward to your commendation. Because this is such a passing time, such a brief moment. But being with you is forever. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd make us faithful. Help us, God, to declare your words that others might be freed from wrath, from slavery to sin, and might know you. In Jesus' name, amen.